When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Whatever, Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Um, now, this is kind of, I guess you'd say, part three of the series highlighting all the amazing work the, that pharmacists, PharmDs did at SECM 2023 Congress. So if you haven't yet, definitely go back and listen to some of the presenters talk about their sessions in part one or two. Um, there's some really awesome people to learn from, really fun talks from a variety of, of topics. Um, now today, this episode is dedicated to highlighting pharmacists who are awarded STAR researchers, STAR research awards uh, for their submissions to SCCM. So um, eight awesome studies highlighted here from a multitude of topics, from ID to cardiothoracic surgery to sepsis. So um the, the first two episodes kind of featured me talking about the presentation, going into detail on some slides from the from the virtual or digital version that I liked or didn't like, et cetera. Um, you know, things that I learned from or just overall thought it was valuable to discuss. This episode, what's actually going to happen is the researchers themselves are going to give a brief talk on their study, right? So for a few minutes. Now, keep in mind, if you've actually done research, right, you know how challenging it can actually be to reduce your your work and what you talk about to a few minutes. So um, kudos to all to everyone for um, being able to do that and coming on and, and um, helping us talk a little and learn a little bit more from these awesome studies. Now, after that, of course, we'll ask some questions, gain some insight. Um, so this is really fun. I mean, it's eight star researchers, right? One great episode. I think it's time to have two fantastic sponsors get us going. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate. For over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Now, our next guest Sylvia Stefanos is a, a PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident from the University of Colorado, and you can find her on Twitter at 
Sylvia Stefano. She got her first and last name, which I always find enjoyable when people are able to make that happen. And she is here to present her star research project, which is restrictive resuscitation in patients with sepsis, a systematic review with trial sequential analysis. So Sylvia, take it away. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction, Nick. So jumping right in, like any other medication, too much fluid can be associated with an increased risk of harm. And so we give a lot of fluid and sepsis. So that led us to conducting our systematic review and meta-analysis that looks at the PICO question. Does restrictive res- resuscitation or fluid restriction reduce mortality compared with a standard fluid approach in the septic patient? And so we included studies that were prospective randomized controlled trials. They have to be published after the original 2001 EGDT study, and they have to have a restrictive fluid arm that resulted in effective reductions in fluid quantities, which we defined as a 500 milliliter difference or a statistically significant difference in fluid volumes. And so a unique aspect of our meta-analysis was the use of trial sequential analysis, or TSA, as part of our statistics. And this may not be as familiar to some of our listeners. I know it was new to me also. But it's essentially a cumulative meta-analysis method that we use to estimate if a study effect is large enough to be unaffected by future studies. And so part of this is a visual graph that has a Z-curve that represents studies added in chronological order over time and the effect that they have cumulatively. So what we can see is a Z-curve and see if it crosses into boundaries for statistical significance. We can see if it crosses a line indicating we've achieved power for that outcome. Or we can see if it crosses a non-inferiority margin, which implies futility, meaning that if we increase the sample size or add future studies, that may still not make a difference in the outcome that we're seeing. And so after a literature search, we ended up with eight randomized controlled trials with the 2020 Fresh and 2022 Classic studies being the most recent additions after a previous meta-analysis conducted in 2020. Unfortunately, all of these studies still utilize your typical 30 milliliters per kilogram as part of early goal-directed therapy, and so we were only able to assess the effects of fluid restriction after the initial six hours. And so our meta-analysis results showed no difference in our primary outcome of mortality between both arms, and this was also confirmed by our TSA findings. And our Z-curve did not cross the power, and the line indicating power, and so um, while we're not able to achieve power for that outcome, it's still trended towards the non-inferiority margin with the addition of the 2022 classic study. And so this implies that adding future studies or increasing sample size looking at mortality may not make a difference. And we kind of already saw this with the recent publication of the Clover study, which again showed no difference in mortality. A secondary outcome I want to highlight is the duration of mechanical ventilation, which was significantly shorter in the restrictive fluid arm. And our TSA shows that this crosses into statistical significance at the addition of the 2020 FRESH study. And so the biggest takeaway from our findings is that although we didn't see a significant difference in mortality, fluid restriction was still associated with shorter duration on the vent, which is clinically meaningful also. And based on our TSA findings, um, future studies should focus on other clinically meaningful outcomes besides mortality, like mechanical vent duration, rates of AKI, or need for renal replacement therapy. And I'll end with a shameless plug. Um, Our study was also recently published in pharmacotherapy last month in January. So if you're curious to see what the TSA figures look like or want to learn more, check it out there. 
I told Sylvia before we came on, there are no shameless plugs on Pharmacy of Dose. There's only awesome plugs. So um, definitely go check out that um, article in Pharmacotherapy. And what a what a cool research idea trying to look at not only the, the fluid um, during resuscitation, but after. Obviously, um, you can't make up the research or the data, so you could only focus on the latter. But, um, you know, you... You talked about this is such a really awesome research article, and you know, on a on a scale from zero to ten, right? What would you say your comfort with statistics prior to this was? Because this is kind of like a higher level, like statistical analysis. Like, I'm going to be honest, I hadn't like I hadn't even heard of TSA when like an airport wasn't involved. So, what? How would you rate your <laughs> confidence before this? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And besides knowing how to interpret a forest plot, I knew absolutely little to none, nothing about meta-analysis statistics that so would probably put it at like a three. But I've learned so much through this process. And of course, you kudos to um, my preceptors in this, Paul Reynolds and Rob McLaren. But um, when I first hopped on, I definitely Googled TSA abbreviation meaning and had to sift through a lot of airport results before finding what I was looking for. But um, I've since read a lot about this and learned more about its utility in meta-analysis, not only in interpreting the results we're getting, but also kind of guiding future research. I'm sure the comfort and confidence that you have now is much different than like the months ago when you started this. So for a lot of the people listening, like what would you say is like the biggest thing that you learned through this experience or what kind of advice would you give to those listening for those, especially those looking to maybe kind of take a step beyond um, the, the single center retrospective kind of observational study? Yeah, that's a great question because um, that's definitely something I kept in mind when I was looking for residency programs. And so I think the first step for students or PGY one residents looking for their next step is to, Take a look at the preceptors at the programs you're interested in and see what kinds of research projects they've been a part of in the past because that's something that you might be able to be involved in as well. And the second piece of advice and something that I've also received as a PGY-1 resident is in any residency program that you're a part of, um, when preceptors are pitching projects to you, don't just focus on the topic, but also take a project based on the preceptors that you'll be working with. That mentorship is invaluable and has made all the difference in the projects that I've been a part of. You learn how to write protocols, how to have sound methodology, and they're the people who will help you take that project across the, the finish line ultimately in the end. And so it's made all the difference for me. Yeah, that kind of hits home with with one of my big takeaways is if in doubt, make sure that Paul Reynolds and Rob McLaren are <laughs> on your study um, for anyone attempting to do this. No, um, Sylvia, I, even though I'm sure they played an awesome help, I, I know you you carried a, a, a burden doing a lot of this yourself. So uh, thanks for coming on, talking a little bit more about it, kind of letting the listeners in on such a, an awesome, literally a star research uh, project. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Nick. So joining us now, um, star research presenter, uh, Jesse Briscoe. Uh, now, Jesse is currently the PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at Erlinger Health System in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Find her on Twitter at Jesse B, that's J-E-S-S-E, Jesse B Farm D. 
And she had an awesome uh, research study that she's going to spend some time talking about. It's the incidence of acute kidney injury in traumatic brain injury patients treated with hypertonic saline. We Everyone knows this is a pro-hypertonic saline podcast, so I am very interested in some of these findings. So Jesse, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I'm excited to tell you about my research. We know that there's significant literature that confirms the adverse effects of high chloride solutions, such as hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis and acute kidney injury. Numerous studies have examined the association of AKI and hypertonic saline in a variety of patient populations, with most studies finding an association between chloride load and AKI. Notably, most of this research has excluded traumatic brain injury patients, which are unique due to their demographics, concomitant traumatic injuries, and associated augmented renal clearance. Additionally, previous literature has failed to examine the effects of non-hypertonic saline chloride sources, such as medication diluents, other fluids, and salt tabs. So given this gap in the literature, we decided to put together a study with the primary outcome of determining the incidence of AKI in TBI patients treated with hypertonic saline. We included teen and adult ICU patients with a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury they received at least 24 hours of continuous hypertonic saline or at least 500 milliliters of hypertonic saline boluses within a 24-hour period. We excluded patients who had significant renal dysfunction, which we defined as ESRD requiring hemodialysis or a baseline creatinine clearance less than 15. Besides determining the incidence of AKI in this population, we also wanted to look more deeply into the AKI versus no AKI groups to determine what factors may have contributed to the development of acute kidney injury. I could talk about our research for days, but there are four interesting points that I want to focus on today. The first is that among 130 patients included in our study, 20 patients or 15% developed acute kidney injury. This aligns with the published, the previously published rates of AKI in non-trauma populations who receive hypertonic saline but it's lower than that published in a recent similar study in traumatic brain injury patients. The second point is that despite similar baseline chloride levels, the AKI group had higher maximum serum chloride levels and a higher change in serum chloride when compared to the no AKI group. Our logistic regression analysis indicated that for every one unit increase in serum chloride, the risk of AKI went up 1.076 times. Based on this, it appears that chloride level may be associated with the development of AKI in TBI patients, which isn't something that's been noted in previous literature. That brings me to my third point, which is that there were no differences in total chloride load administered between groups. This includes chloride from both hypertonic saline and non-hypertonic saline sources. When we looked at chloride load from hypertonic saline only, we found that the no AKI group actually received more chloride from hypertonic saline than the AKI group which is the opposite of what's been found in previous literature. There were no differences in chloride provided from non-hypertonic saline sources, which again included other fluids, medication diluents, and salt tabs. And then finally, my fourth point is that non-hypertonic saline sources contributed over 40% of total chloride load in both the no AKI and AKI groups. That's a significant amount of total daily chloride. And when you consider that it's been omitted from previous literature on this topic, I think it indicates that there's a large gap in what we've previously assessed when determining what factors are actually contributing to AKI. I think our research is a good reminder that we should be consi considering non-hypertonic saline 
sources of chloride when we're doing research on the effects of hyperchloremia in patients on hypertonic saline and also considering it when we're treating these patients in a clinical setting as well. Jesse, I'm not sure what's a, a bigger tongue twister. Non-hypertonic sources of chloride or AKI and TBI with hypertonic saline. No. Um, I know there are so many. <laughs> now, in, in all seriousness, you bring you you make the, the great point, right, during your, your presentation that, you know, to be aware of the non-hypertonic saline, kind of the three percent chloride sources and their contribute to hyperchloremia, right? I think uh I think friend of the pot, Anthony Hawkins would refer to this as the fluid creep, right? It's things that's kind of unaccounted for that unexpected in a sense, right? So one of the points that also stood out to me, right, when we're looking at the um, study groups, that over 50% of each group received mannitol. So, you know, if we're thinking about the role of the non-hypertonic saline chloride sources, my question would be, what do you think the role of like the non-hypertonic osmolar therapy, mannitol, and that, you know, how do you think that plays a part with that, um, the incidence of AKI? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I was asked in person when I presented this at SCCM as well. One thing that I want to note is that our hospital frequently gives mannitol in the emergency room, but it's not typically continued once the patient moves to our trauma ICU. Despite that, we did want to account for mannitol in this project as much as we possibly could. So we did collect a good bit of data on it, and we found that there were no differences between the number of patients who received mannitol or the average daily mannitol dose between the two groups. Additionally, on days where patients received more than 50 grams of mannitol, we calculated their serum osmol gap, and we found that there were that was not different between groups either. In fact, our average serum osmol gap in both groups was less than eight, which is typically much lower than where we where we would start to be concerned for renal dysfunction on patients on mannitol. That's a that's a good point. And if you're saying you you broke down the doses at 50 grams, it sounds like they might not have even been getting that full gram per kilo dose or, or anything like that when they were getting that down there. Yeah, that's true. They typically just get um, individual doses of 50 grams while they're in our ER. Our practice differs from um, some other sites. Oh yeah, the we're not going to get on the soapbox of hyperosmolar therapy because what we've learned <laughs> is that we really don't know anything. But that is a that whole thing is a is a discussion for another day. Now, coming back to your research project, so in today's research world, having an awesome acronym is essential. I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but who doesn't love abbreviated title that's easy to remember? Because I sure do. So. Jesse, let the audience and I know, does this research study have a fun acronym or abbreviation that we can all learn? Well, it has an acronym, at least for me. Uh, There are a lot of tongue twisters when you start trying to talk (laughs) about hypertonic saline and traumatic brain injury patients. Uh, So I casually started calling it the SALTY study. I don't think it'll be published as that because there's already a SALT study or SALT salt trial, Uh, but I think it'll always be the SALTY study to me. This was my PGY-1 research project, and my PGY-2 project is on insulin and glucose management. So I obviously had to start calling my PGY-2 project the sweet study. So I'm hoping that between the the salty and sweet of PGY-1 and PGY-2, I'll come out of residency as a very well-rounded critical care pharmacist. I love that. And I'm, I'm sure Salty never described your demeanor when collecting the data and all of the things that went along with um, this great research project on 
the incidence of AKI and TBI patients with hypertonic saline? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, a reminder, if uh, if you all want to reach out, uh, at Jesse B. Farm D. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for taking time to kind of briefly um, give an overview of your research and kind of, you know, answer a couple of the questions that, that were burning when I had kind of seen it. And then, of course, congrats for this awesome star research presentation. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. So the next star research uh, presenter that we're highlighting uh, on the pod today is uh, Dr. Lauren Caldwell. Now, uh, Lauren currently practices in the medical ICU with the pulmonary critical care team. She received her PGY-1 um, from Banner Desert Medical Center in uh, Mesa, Arizona, and got her PGY-2 in critical care at the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada in Las Vegas. I guess it would help to say she's from Erlinger Health. That that uh, would, would play a part of where she is the uh, works in the medical ICU, um, and her presentation is the comparison of factor products for uncontrolled bleeding related to cardiac surgery. So, Lauren, thanks so much for uh, for joining me today, highlighting your talk, and why don't you kind of take it away, give us a little bit of uh, of an overview as to kind of what you were looking at and what you found. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the purpose of our research study was to determine if low-dose recombinant factor 7 or PCC required less packed red blood cell transfusions within six hours of factor product administration. And throughout our study, we defined low-dose as less than 30 micrograms per kilogram. Um, historically, a lot of the other studies that have looked at this utilized higher doses of recombinant factor 7. So we were specifically targeting a low-dose population. We ended up including 179 patients over the five-year period that we reviewed, um, 78 of them receiving recombinant factor 7 and 101 of them receiving PCC. Um, the majority of our patients ended up being male who underwent open procedures, um, mostly cabbages. So our initial median doses that we included or that we found were 14.9 micrograms per kilogram of recombinant factor 7. Um, which came out to be approximately 1,000 micrograms. For looking at PCC, it was 524 units or approximately one box. Um, so in our primary outcome, looking at the packed red blood cells, we ended up finding no difference, and about 70% of the patients in both groups ended up receiving packed red blood cells. We had a number of secondary outcomes that we evaluated, but I'm just going to hit the highlights of the ones I felt that were the most interesting. Um, that being the additional doses received. So the patients in our recombinant factor seven group, about 25% of them received a second dose of either factor product, and about 50% of our patients in our PCC group ended up receiving a second dose. Now the caveat with this is our, this is more provider driven, um, and there can be crossover between the two groups. So just because you got PCC the first time doesn't mean you could get PCC again, you could get either or, or potentially both. Um, so what we ended up finding was that there was some pretty significant crossover. Um, so the page 7.7% of the patients in the initial factor seven group did receive a secondary dose of PCC and about 33.7% of patients in the PCC group ended up receiving recombinant factor seven. Another piece of that, which was interesting was that the median doses, um, that patients received, especially of the recombinant factor seven was higher at a 1500 dose 
in comparison to our initial median doses of 1,000 micrograms. Um, but the PCC median dose of secondary doses remain the same at approximately one box. Thrombotic events is another secondary outcome we wanted to look at. Um, this is something that had been previously looked at and was found to be high in the recombinant factor 7 patient population. However, we found no difference within our study. And then when you looked at patients specifically who got multiple doses, only one of those patients um, ended up having a thrombotic event. We also looked at chest tube output, which was something that a lot of the studies previously had looked at as almost like the standard of care for a metric in relation to bleeding after cardiac surgery. And we found no difference between the two groups. Um, and renal morbidity, specifically looking at AKI, our patients in our PCC group have, were twice as likely to develop AKI and ultimately progress to renal failure um, in comparison to the prominent factor seven group. We determined our AKI based off of the rifle criteria, which is the STS current metric for determining acute renal failure and injury. Um, one of the kind of caveats with this part was is there's a lot of compounders, right, that can contribute to renal morbidity, especially mm -hmm. in this population. We did try to account for specific um, renal toxic medications. Um, however, we did not um, look at hypotension, prolonged bypass time, or specifically acute blood loss anemia. Well, what a what a unique study. I, I like a lot of those um, secondary outcomes you kind of looked at, right? Or things that that we have looked at and have been studied in the in the cardiothoracic surgery world. So I think that's really cool. Now, you mentioned the median doses of factor seven and PCC being a milligram and right a box of five hundred um, units, respectively. So. Is there a, a dosing protocol for these or is it more kind of like provider discretion? Asking just because the median dose is working out to that basically box of each of them. Right. So our median doses are significantly less than what's been previously reported. Um, we did implement some dose rounding in terms of uh, factor seven specifically. So upon order verification, our pharmacists are instructed to round up to the nearest vial size to prevent waste of that. We, but we don't specifically have a dosing protocol. Um, they have a dosing panel for bleeding and the defaults are 15 micrograms per kilogram and 500 units of, of PCC. Um, but it is up to their discretion. Like just because they use the order panel once doesn't prohibit them from crossing over as you saw or uh, ordering additional doses or changing the dose. So what is, how do you plan on using this data, I guess, to kind of like, um, you know, in tandem with your cardiothoracic surgery team? I think our plans for this are to actually maybe increase the initial doses of PCC that we've been giving. Um, just looking at the 50% of patients who we found needed additional doses. So maybe our initial dose is too low. Maybe it should be more in line with previous studies. Um, and then I think also implementing a bleeding algorithm that utilizes pegs, I think would go a long way, um, especially when in terms of like blood product shortages and factor shortages. So just kind of being um, proactive by utilizing the tags and seeing what products our patients actually need with where they are at that moment. Yeah, I, I that, that sounds like a great plan to me. I completely agree with that. Um, now, I, I got to ask, um, so Erlinger has not one, 
but two star research projects, right? I, we, we had um, Jesse Briscoe come on here and talk about it as well. So what do you got in the water down there in Chattanooga? <laughs> um, I would say that we have a couple great research mentors here um, that have really pushed us to grow in our research abilities and just kind of get ourselves out there more. Um, so I think it's just really great to have these people that work here alongside of us, kind of getting us out of our comfort zone and pushing us to do more than we ever thought was capable. Well, um, expectations exceeded strong work. I mean, two stars there from, from putting that out there. Um, so awesome work and, and thank you so much for, for taking just a little bit of time to, uh, come on and, and talk to some of the, uh, listeners, um, highlighting this, this study that you did. Yeah. Thanks so much. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now the next uh, star researcher um, joining us to um, highlight uh, their research from the 2023 uh, SECM Congress is Sheriston Kakoy. Um, now, Sheriston is the critical care pharmacy fellow in the joint Vanderbilt Lipscomb Fellowship Program at the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center. And she's going to be talking today uh, about her, it's a, it's a really great study, um, the validation of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia risk stratification tools in surgical patients. So, Sheriston, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Hey, Nick. I'm a longtime listener and fan of the Pharmacy to Dose podcast and really appreciate this opportunity. My research project was focused on heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, specifically in our cardiovascular surgical population, to see if we could utilize another scoring tool in place of the 4T score, which has been only validated in medical patients, and as you may know, has many limitations when applying it directly to this patient population. The two novel scoring tools we looked at were the cardiopulmonary bypass, or CPB, that was developed by Lilo Le Lue and colleagues, which is only applicable in patients that experience cardiopulmonary bypass machines. And we also looked at the HIT expert probability tool, or the HEP tool, that was developed by Cooker and colleagues, which considers time on bypass, but also considers factors that reduced the risk of HIT as well. The primary outcome of our study was the number of patients whose scoring tool prediction utilizing the 4T, CPB, and HEP scoring tools matched the ELISA and or SRA testing to positively identify HIT. Secondary outcomes that we looked at included the sensitivity and specificity of each scoring tool, the optical density cutoff that was correlated with HIT, in the overall rates of thromboembolism. We looked at adult patients in the CVICU or CCU who underwent cardiovascular surgery, which was defined as mitral valve replacement, surgical aortic valve replacement, aortic dissection repair, 
or coronary artery bypass grafting. 291 patients were identified with a total of 137 meeting inclusion criteria. We then characterized these patients by HIT status, in which 126 were HIT negative and 11 were HIT positive. We defined HIT positive as an ELISA optical density greater than one with evidence of thromboembolism or a positive SRA. Now, historically, an ELISA greater than 0.4 would be a threshold to send a confirmatory SRA, but considering the low positive predictive value and concern for high false positives utilizing that threshold, we found more literature supporting a higher threshold and utilized the cutoff of one in our study to help control for that. Baseline characteristics were balanced between both groups with a majority of our population being elderly white males with coronary artery bypass grafting as their primary surgery for inclusion. There was also a trend towards significance um, and a longer ICU stay uh, in the HIP positive arm. Looking at the primary endpoint, we found a significant difference when utilizing the 4T score, which was driven by the indication of high risk with a score of six or more. Additionally, the CPB and HEP scores both demonstrated significance in predicting HIT with patients determined to be high risk with a score of two or more. When assessing secondary outcomes, the optical density associated with HIT in our population was a significant finding with a median score of 1.28 in the HIT positive arm, which resembles the emerging literature indicating a higher cutoff holding a stronger positive predictive value. It was no surprise that both arterial and venous thromboembolism occurred more commonly in the HIP positive arm. The sensitivity and specificity of the CPB tool was 33% and 75% respectively, compared to the HEP tool, which was 57% sensitive and 100% specific. Ultimately, we found that either scoring tool can be used and may be reliable when it identifies high-risk patients specifically, but the HEP scoring tool is more comprehensive with higher sensitivity and specificity. So my the question that came to my mind is, is really, how did this practice idea come about? I think this is like a really well thought out study. And I know many of us working in the critical care world, specifically the CT surgery world, right, can go frustrated with the limitations of the classic, you know, four T's ELISA hit test. Oh, absolutely. There are certainly many gaps when trying to apply the 4T score in this patient population. And we were finding numerous concerns for HIT in situations that sometimes did not resemble the clinical course of HIT. And there were subsequent changes in therapy, which at my previous institution, the workhorse was by Valerudin. But when the testing was either inconclusive or even negative in some situations, therapy was not adjusted back to heparin due to continued concern or just general um, uh, provider discomfort with doing that. So that's truly what sparked our interest and uh, resulted in us conducting this study particularly. I think it's exciting that 
these novel scoring tools may play a role in cardiac critical care management, and we simply just tested it with our population. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The the next step, right, is validating it. So, um, you in the in the virtual presentation, which I'd encourage everyone to listen to, you you went into detail talking about the evidence for the ELISA cutoff, right? And um, I the what I'm saying there is the classic cutoff where something would be considered positive, right? And the the um, classic I score research rate is 0.4. Um, you you mentioned the literature can go all the way up to 1.5 percent. And your, you know, this, the study in your all study, you utilized 1%. So talk a little bit about what you think, um, and maybe if it's conclusive at all, what do you think the best cutoff is? Yeah. So the concern with the ELISA is it's low positive predictive value. Uh, and in some cohorts specifically like cardiovascular surgery, nearly half of the patients show hit antibodies. Uh, by ELISA, but again, thrombosis is an uncommon finding, which is a major concern with HIT in general. So two ways to kind of overcome this are either developing a more specific IgG ELISA test or increasing the optical density with obviously the latter being more feasible. So when looking at the literature, consistent findings demonstrated um, an association between higher ELISA results and uh, a clinical correlation with a diagnosis of HIT. So uh, most of the data falls in the middle at about one. So that's the cutoff that we decided to utilize. It worked in our study, but I'm definitely curious to see if we have future uh, literature that expands on this concept and how that might develop in the future. Yeah, that's a great point of of seeing what other uh, studies and things, what cutoffs they, they use. Cause ultimately if a certain number is consistently researched over and over that will, you know, sometimes end up being the cutoff, right? Just cause that's where all the, the literature is. Right. That's exactly right. So the, the, the phrase pharmacy is a small world, right? It is, uh, it's corny. Um, I think it's something that everyone has heard in the world of pharmacy, I'm saying that because we have a real life example um, uh, happening right now. Um, because, Sherston, where did you go? Where did you get your PGY one? Where did you get your PGY one residency done at? Yeah, so uh, truly, it is a small world. I am a national native, so I was happy to stay home for residency. So I completed. PGY1 training at TriStar Centennial Medical Center here in Nashville. Yeah, that is, that's also where I did my residency. Um, it's funny. It's literally now the the director of, of pharmacy at, at Centennial is, is Mike Verton, right? One of, uh, one of the Butler Pharmacy graduates, right? Who did the, the residency the year before me. So we had to highlight that of how small a world it is. Um, and just to comment of like, I guess how great Nashville is. I didn't realize you're a Nashville native. Um, so I'm going to give you, we'll give you 20 seconds here. Um, because I've allowed, we allowed Scott Dietrich this talking about Colorado. So if you want to say the same thing about Nashville, we'll give you about 15 to 20 seconds to lay the case and tell people to stop moving there. Listen, traffic is as bad as it could be. 
And uh, from all the national natives, we thank you in advance for not moving here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, visit, no, but in all right? seriousness, yeah. Nashville is an incredible place to live, and it's been booming significantly. Um, it's becoming such a fun city. So definitely come visit Nashville if you haven't been. Yeah, and try our hot chicken. Yes, hot chicken. All right, before we leave, what's your, what's your uh, go-to hot chicken place? Prince's hot chicken. Yep. Yep. The, the real ones know <laughs> Prince's. That's exactly right. Um, well, uh, Sherston, thank you so much for, for coming on. This was fun. And, and, uh, more importantly, thanks for this, uh, awesome research that you, uh, that you and your colleagues did. Thanks for the feature. The honor's mine. The next star researcher, um, joining us to highlight their, um, research from the 2023 SCCM Congress is Bill Peppard. Now, Bill is the Enterprise Pain Stewardship Coordinator for the Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Chair of Pharmacy Research and Assistant Professor of Surgery through the Division of Trauma and Critical Care. And that name should not be a, um, a surprise if you're familiar with um, really any of the literature from pharmacy to critical care to emergency medicine, anywhere in between. Um, and, and the research that Bill is highlighting today is entitled Naloxone Co-Prescribing for Emergency Medicine and Trauma Patients at High Risk for Opioid Overdose. So Bill, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So if I may, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our project. Um, you know, Naloxone co-prescribing, there's a decent amount of data out there that tells us that that's an effective risk mitigation strategy, that when you identify patients that are high risk, whether it be in the ambulatory setting or the inpatient setting or uh, otherwise, we do know that the co-prescribing of naloxone can reduce the likelihood of an inadvertent overdose. And there are multiple national recommendations out there uh, recommending that of healthcare providers do this, and we really focus on the CDC guidelines that recommend that. And they have some criteria that are out there, and our decision to uh, implement naloxone aligns for the most part with the high-risk patient population that the CDC identified. So patients that are prescribed more than 50 morphine milligram equivalents or MMEs per day uh, of opioid or opioids prescribed at any dose concurrently with benzodiazepine or patients prescribed opioids at any dose um, who have a history of uh, an opioid overdose of some sort. You know, so in an effort to hardwire this into our medical system, into our electronic health record, we implemented a best practice alert or a BTA. And basically, when any of those criteria were satisfied uh, based on prescriptions that providers have generated, the BPA would fire and, and essentially give the provider pause and say, hey, provider, uh, please think about discussing some risk mitigation strategies with your patients. And we offered a hyperlink that listed in detail some risk mitigation strategies, one of which was naloxone co-prescribing. And leveraging clinical decision support, we tried to make it really easy, literally one click for the provider to just go ahead and prescribe that naloxone to that patient. And what we did was focus on the time period before the BPA implementation and we compared it to the timeline after the BPA implementation. And we really tried to focus in on, um, you know, the high-risk patient populations, but more specifically patients in the emergency department, 
and the trauma patient population, knowing that inherently they're high risk, but also because they have strong relationships with those provider groups. And what we found was um, immediately upon implementation of the DCA, the frequency at which naloxone was prescribed went up dramatically. So, for example, at baseline in the trauma cohort, only 1.4% of patients received a naloxone co-prescription. After implementation, 50.7% of patients received the naloxone. And we saw a similar, but not quite as profound trend in the emergency medicine patient population. We went from 20% pre-intervention to 80% post-intervention. And we found this is really effective. And we found that between those two cohorts, the reasons why naloxone was co-prescribed differed a little bit. Um, in, in large part, in the trauma population was driven by high MMEs. Uh, most of our patients get below 50 MMEs, but for those that get above 50 MMEs, we were frequently prescribing naloxone. In contrast, the emergency department population was largely driven by co-prescribing with benzodiazepines. So most commonly, the scenario we saw was patients presented to the ED with acute pain, they were on a chronic benzodiazepine, and they received, in general, a short course of opioid to treat their acute pain without satisfying the criteria for the DCA. So we definitely saw different behavioral patterns. We've continued to follow this trend even after the project, and it's really been encouraging to find that um, no matter how you slice and dice the data, uh, moving beyond trauma and emergency medicine, but looking at um, inpatient, ambulatory, emergency medicine, all service lines, the frequency which a lot of people have is gone up substantially. And it's been really an exciting and invigorating project. We had tremendous buy-in from our stakeholders and, and support from all levels of leadership, and, and it's just been an absolute pleasure slowly chip away at the overarching opioid crisis, recognizing that, you know, you have to have a multifaceted approach. And this is only one element, but in the aggregate, we're doing a lot of different things uh, over the course of the last couple of years to try to chip away at that. And we're slowly starting to move the needle. What an impressive um, study and just from and project and just from, from beginning to end, what was, what I was curious about is, like, how long did it take to create this? And, and you know, generally speaking, like, how many different committees did you have to go through for this enterprise-wide initiative? Because I think those who haven't ever done this before may not have an idea of the time or effort and, and the amount of, of hoops you have to jump through to truly make something like this happen. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. And obviously, we're a pretty large enterprise. You know, we've got more than 10 hospitals and 40 clinics. So there's, there's a fair amount of, of bureaucracy involved with an organization that large. And from beginning to end, um, from the moment we had the vision to implement this project to the time it actually went live, it was more than eight months to build. We had a couple months gaining support, reaching out to stakeholders, making our case, and, and gaining their support. And then we spent probably another four months or so bringing it through multiple committees. We brought it to our Enterprise Pain Stewardship Committee, uh, committee that I co-chair with anesthesiologists to make sure we had all stakeholders from different specialties on board. We brought it through the Pharmacy Informatics Committee, and that's essentially where we go to gain approval for the resources to actually build this in the health record. We had to bring it to the Clinical Governance Committee, and that's really where we had providers sign off on it. So anything that's provider-facing, providers need to have say. Uh, and that's the mechanism that we do it at our enterprise. And then finally, we brought it to the medical informatics officer meeting where when every other piece was in place, this is a group that says, yay or nay, this can go live. And fortunately, it was a yay vote unanimously. 
Then we had two months of beta testing, and we really optimized sensitivity and specificity. We literally ran a report on a monthly basis. This was live in the shadow environment, so the VK was firing, but pres- prescribers couldn't see it. And we were analyzing how and when and where and why the VK was firing, constantly making tweets so that when it was physician and provider facing, and it was opened up in the medical record, that we would optimize the frequency at which it is used because we really need to be hypercognizant of alert fatigue in situations like this. So you mentioned um, the getting getting the stakeholders involved and how key they were to the success, right? With so many people being involved and, and supportive of this. But what would you say was was the biggest challenge to to gain um, whether it's the multi whether it's multidisciplinary involvement or investment? But what was one of the biggest barriers of that at the beginning? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest barriers is is really getting into the level of granularity of specialty services, right? When you look at the 10,000 per view, when you look at the data in aggregate, certainly naloxone co-prescribing makes sense. But as soon as you encounter a group that feels that it doesn't benefit their particular cohort, their narrowly focused patient population, you got to kind of find the data and make the case on an individual basis, uh, service line to service line. So you know what? But, but there is data to support this. And, you know, so our approach was to gain a physician champion that could really stand behind all the data in our messaging. We also got executive sponsorship from the VP level at the enterprise, uh, the VPs that co-chair our committee. Uh, one of the other things that really helped us, and, and I think this, this more so speaks to pharmacy practice more broadly than uh, what I do uh, alone, is that we have vertical integration of pharmacy within our leadership at the enterprise. So, our former director, former directors and executive directors have gone up through executive leadership um, at the enterprise level and goes beyond pharmacy. So we always have advocacy. We always have a voice to pharmacy-centric projects, and it's very easy to gain multidisciplinary engagement at our enterprise because of that. Uh, it's, that's a, it's an awesome culture that, that you all have there now kind of speaking of the, of the administrators and things. So how did, how did you go about, uh, presenting this and kind of what did you present to the, to the hospital administrators, um, in the C-suites? Yeah. So there's, my role has a regular cadence at which we report out to different committees. So PMP committee, medication safety committee, the executive committee, usually on an annual basis. And let's be honest, we try to cherry pick the data that makes that paints us in the best light and, and looks as good as humanly possible, right? But with this project, it was fairly easy because not only because of the volume of, of the data, but because it really reached every corner of the enterprise. It wasn't inpatient centric. It wasn't just specialty centric. It really reached every corner of the enterprise. And we really just showed the volumes of naloxone that was prescribing and the efficiency rate at which the DTA was firing. For example, I mean, the acceptance rate. Uh, and really, that that it it touched every specialty service line, and it was fairly well received. Well, that's awesome, and and what a what a um, unique kind of study idea to help kind of tackle one of the issues that you know the whole nation, all of us in 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 the hospital is kind of um, facing in terms of opioids and things. So, um, kudos! What a what a well done Star Research project, and and really thank you for for taking the time and uh, talk a little bit about it to uh, myself and the audience. Yeah, absolutely, my pleasure. And you know, in closing, reporting out to those committees, like I said, it was well received, but. But there was kind of a, a moment to give me pause, kind of an aha moment where 
you know, he finished presenting all this information to the executive committee, an executive uh, with a very serious look and tone, says, yeah, well, so what? Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm sitting there thinking, well, what do you mean, so what? I, have you not been listening? We spent the last eight months developing this, this BTA. We stand behind it. We're very proud of the work. It's multidisciplinary. It's the right thing for patient care. Uh, but, but they really brought us back, in all seriousness, they, they brought it back to the patient. What does this mean for the patient? You know, and a lot of prescribing is just a surrogate, right? And they're absolutely right. It is just a surrogate. You know, so that leads us to the next steps of what we're doing with this research project. We've got some outcome data that we're looking at. So specifically, we're looking at um, opioid-related uh, toxicities and overdoses and the frequency at which these patients present to the emergency department. And we're further diving into the data to determine, okay, how many of those patients were prescribed opioids by our providers? How many were prescribed naloxone? How many had the BTA fire in the 12 months preceding their ED visit, and we chose not to prescribe naloxone? So we're really getting into the level of granularity. I'm happy to report that, albeit modest, we've seen a steady reduction in the frequency at which patients present to the ED because of opioid-related toxicity. So I think in aggregate, all of our efforts are, are slowly starting to make some progress, not just because of this one project, but because we've tried to change the culture over the last several years. So that was kind of a so what moment, so to speak, uh, from executive leadership that kind of gave us a chuckle. It really gives you perspective, right? Because you have done all of this work and you have to, they're like, so what? And you're racking your brain. You're like, but I just, I just, I just told you what, told you, told you everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it sounds like there's going to be um, some awesome things on on the horizon for uh, for all of us to to look forward to reading, and uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on to uh, to talk about some of those things. I look forward to that. Thanks for the opportunity, Nick. Absolutely. Take care. Now, the next star researcher um, being highlighted on the um, SECM 2023 Congress Research Recap is Jenny Schulteis, the, and she is speaking about the incidence of detectable drug levels with inhaled aminoglycoside therapy in critically ill adults. Um, now, one quick thing of note I, I didn't know this either, is this is actually kind of like a a, a subgroup um, analysis of a, of a bigger um, study that was published in the Journal of Antimicrobial Therapy in, um, it looks like January of 2023. That'll get kind of posted out, but um, that looks at the bigger non-critically ill um, population for those that um, may be curious. Now, Jenny is a critical care clinical pharmacist in the medical intensive care unit at Duke University, um, and you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Schulteis underscore Jen. So, Jenny, I appreciate you for taking the time to uh, join me so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick, for having me on. Appreciate this. Absolutely. So, I think this is a, a really unique study because I think you're you're looking into something that all of us probably have done at one point, thinking that probably didn't have a whole lot of harm with it. So why don't you kind of go give us a little bit of a, of a of a brief talk about this uh, really awesome study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at Duke, we have used inhaled aminoglycosides uh, for a multitude of reasons. Um, we use them for patients with pulmonary fibrosis or chronic bronchiectasis is chronic suppressive therapy, or we also use them for treatment of non-tuberculosis mycobacterial infections as well. Um, obviously, inhaled aminoglycosides, we uh, like to use them over systemic or IV therapy because they do achieve high concentrations in the lung tissue, 
uh, with the hope to minimize systemic exposure. Uh, but that systemic exposure and accumulation is really poorly understood. And uh, prior to our research project, was really limited to case series and case reports. So, um, yeah, our uh, study objective was to determine the incidence of infectable drug level with inhaled immunoglycoside therapy. And we looked at the critically ill patient population. Um, like you mentioned, this was a smaller uh, subset study. So we included adult patients with at least one dose of inhaled amikacin or tobramycin who had a drug level during their, during their intensive care unit stay between June of 2013 and uh, June of 2020. And they cannot have received IV immunoglycosides within seven days of the drug level, which would make sense. Um, obviously, we don't want detectable levels there. And uh, patients had to be drawn as a trough. Um, we didn't want it to have a peak level. That would throw off our numbers a little bit. Um, so we defined a detectable drug level as having a tobramycin level greater than 0.5 or amikacin greater than 1.5. And our standard tobramycin dose is 300 milligrams inhaled twice daily or amikacin 500 milligrams inhaled twice daily. And I think the one big thing um, to note is that we didn't necessarily have a protocol for detecting or for obtaining drug levels. So these levels were drawn at provider or pharmacist discretion over the course. And so that may have introduced some selection bias throughout. Um, but yeah, what we was that uh, the detectable drug level was observed for 39 levels, or about 41%. Um, so a majority of those were with tobramycin with 29 levels, or 31%, and then there were 10 patients who received amikacin with a detectable drug level. And the median detectable drug level for tobramycin was 0.9, which is something mm. we would expect with systemic therapy, um, and amikacin was 3.7. So a little concerning in that regard. Um, and then in terms of therapy modifications, we also looked at that um, because there isn't really a lot of data to judge how we should be adjusting our dosing for these uh, detectable drug levels. Um, so about 60% of times we reduce the frequency, about 20% therapy was discontinued. Um, and on occasion, we did uh, dose and frequency reductions as well. I mean, that's a large, that's, that's a almost 80, that's almost 80%. You made some sort of like modification. Um, and yeah. you, you mentioned not, you know, there wasn't really like a set protocol. I'm sure you all have a protocol for IV monitoring, but how often were you actually getting monitoring when they were on inhaled, right? Probably very little, if ever. Right. Yeah. And we do have institutional references that suggest that we could consider weekly levels on inhaled therapy. Um, and so I do think, especially in the ICU setting, a lot of us were checking levels more frequently, um, especially in the cases of organ dysfunction or you're worried about acute kidney injury and worried about accumulation. That's kind of a, a perfect lead in to one of the questions that I had. Um, do you did did the critically ill patients, do you think that they have a, a higher risk of this accumulation? Um, obviously, theoretically, maybe, but or was this similar to kind of the findings of that like larger original cohort? Yeah, so the incidence of detectable drug level was higher for our critically ill patients, about 41%. If you just compare that to the four patients, the incidence was around 25%. So I don't know if, you know, selection bias may have some role in that 
but I, I do think, you know, our critically ill patients um, obviously have organ dysfunction. Impaired renal elimination could be a potential risk factor. Um, so in our larger study, we actually did a risk factor analysis. And um, looking at those risk factors, um, creatinine clearance less than 60 was a risk factor for higher odds of a detectable level. And then mechanical ventilation was another risk factor. Um, the two the two so. huge groups that I'm thinking of when I would want to recommend this, right? When their kidneys aren't that great and when they're on the ventilator. like <laughs> Exactly, exactly, yes. And, you know, I think a lot of this too has to do with delivery of the inhaled aminoglycosides. So for mechanically ventilated patients, we are using vibrating mesh nebulizers. Whereas um, patients on the floor may just be getting jet nebulized therapy. So that may also be, it may not be the ventilator itself, but the mechanism via which we deliver it via the ventilator. Now, how, how would you go about modifying these, these protocols or what went, what went into, was it kind of like team discretion or was there a, a point that led you to decide to either do once daily versus reduce the dose and keep it twice daily? Yeah, I think that, yeah, a lot of this was based on a lot of team members input. Um, we involved our transplant team, our ID colleagues a lot. Um, I think a lot of the thought behind it was that Aminoglycosides are concentration-dependent killers, and so oftentimes we would do frequency modifications, but I think a lot of it, too, depends on the indication and why we're giving it. So I think for patients who are on it for chronic expressive therapy with cystic fibrosis, um, sometimes we would withhold therapy, especially when they're in the ICU setting, um, until they're closer to discharge and more stable, or maybe their renal function has improved until later, and so we'd actually withhold therapy or... Um, if you have non-tubercular mycobacterial infections, uh, the dosing is typically once daily, but we may move to three times a week or something of less frequent. But yeah, I think this is definitely an area for future research because there's not a lot of data on, on how we should be modifying these and, you know, how are we impacting clinical outcomes and I hope we're not affecting, you know, development of resistance or anything like that. But I definitely think this is something that we could study in the future. And I can and I can see the operation side kind of playing a part into figuring out how to modify those too, right? If it's if it's some prepackaged three hundred milligrams, how are we gonna how are we logistically gonna cut that? Maybe we'll just do it once, right? Sometimes you have to think practically as well when you're trying to do some of these things. That's so true. Yeah, oftentimes we don't have to think about the outpatient logistics <laughs> of prescribing, right? <laughs> In, until that outpatient logistic confronts you on a Friday at four, then you're very you 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 become very attuned to it. <laughs> um, yes. Now, um, I. I didn't mention in the intro, I guess I, I'll have to say my apologies because I didn't let the listeners know that we have a Purdue Boilermaker alumni here uh, joining us, right, The from the state of Indiana, which we love. So how, for those who, who may not be keeping up with, with college basketball, um, they're having an impressive year. Uh, Zach Eady's amazing. I get, turns out being seven foot is, helps you out in basketball. Um, but how is that? How is, are you enjoying life in the Duke, North Carolina world now that, uh, Purdue's kind of the big man on campus right now? Yeah. I mean, when I moved down here, I moved down here, I've been down here for 10 years and the blue and blue rivalry is something else. I thought Purdue IU basketball was something, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely enjoying uh, Purdue and how well that they're doing this year. 
Um, and, you know, the fact that Duke and USC aren't doing quite as well is also giving me some glory. So <laughs> representing. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Now, now, where do you fall in the in the Duke versus UNC battle? Well, I would say since I work for Duke that I have to go for the Royal Blue. <laughs> All right. Yep. I won't tell the listeners that you winked there when you said that there. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you got to. I mean, the people who write your paychecks, that should. Yeah, that. Yeah, you got to pick them if you have no other uh, um, sticks in the game. I get that. But exactly. I uh, we appreciate you so much for for coming on. And, and what an awesome research project, because this is another example of in theory, the pathophys and things make sense, right? And so we're following that. And this is just add this to the pile of examples that may or may not have worked from that. Um, so awesome research. What a, what a cool idea. Way to let us know what happened with that. And you're right. Definitely more to come. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. So joining us next is Sydney Wilson, a star research presenter who is currently the PGY2 critical care resident at St. Luke's Hospital of Kansas City. Now, Sydney is social media free. Well, that was fun to say. Um, but she uh, certainly is um, uh, very open to people reaching out, comments, questions, concerns about the research. So her her Gmail account is sydney.com s.wilson11 at gmail.com. And her research project that she's going to be diving into a little bit is the evaluation of achieving targeted vancomycin levels in augmented renal clearance. So Sydney, rock chalk, take us away. Thanks, Nick. So getting started with just a little bit of background. Augmented renal clearance, or ARC, is defined as a creatinine clearance greater than 130 milliliters per minute per meter squared. And then super augmented renal clearance is defined as a creatinine clearance greater than 180 milliliters per minute per meter squared. So rates of augmented renal clearance can be as high as 50 to 85% in the setting of sepsis or trauma. There's a validated scoring system called the ARC score that can predict patients who are at risk for augmented renal clearance. Three patient factors are scored, whether or not the patient is 50 years of age or younger, if they were admitted for trauma, or if they have a modified SOFA score of four or less. And then a score of seven or higher indicates a patient is at high risk for augmented renal clearance. So our study included 300 patients who met the definition of augmented renal clearance and were being treated with vancomycin within our health system. The primary endpoint was the rate of achieving an initial therapeutic trough level for how well are we doing to get our patients to obtain target levels as soon as we can when we start them on vancomycin? We found that 57% of our patients had an initial therapeutic trough, while 43% had an initial sub-therapeutic trough. We ran a regression analysis that identified predictors of an initial therapeutic trough, which determined that age, weight, BMI, serum creatinine were all directly correlated with achieving an initial therapeutic trough. In other words, as patients got older or weighed more, they had increased likelihood of having an initial therapeutic trough. ARC score and creatinine clearance were inversely related to achieving an initial therapeutic trough. So as the creatinine clearance and ARC score increased, the probability of achieving an initial therapeutic trough level decreased. We also performed a subgroup analysis, which evaluated predictors of an initial therapeutic trough and in an attempt to try to build a clinical model for assessing initial therapeutic trough levels. From the previously discussed regression analysis, we identified significant breakpoints 
of age less, less than 50 years, weight less than 90 kilograms, and the credit and clearance of at least 140 milliliters per minute. Of note, per our current dosing protocol, patients with augmented renal clearance who weigh less than 90 kilograms are dosed every 12 hours, while those weighing at least 90 kilograms are dosed every 8 hours. So we then were able to identify what we deemed an ARC risk group. And this recognized patients at risk of an initial subtherapeutic trough level within our patient population. Patients met the ARC risk group definition if they were both less than 50 years of age and had a creatinine clearance of at least 140 milliliters per minute. When looking at our weight breakpoint of 90 kilograms, patients who weighed less than 90 kilograms had poor initial trough achievement rates regardless of if they were in the ARC risk group while our patients who weighed at least 90 kilograms and met the criteria for the ARC risk group, again, less than 50 years of age and a creatinine clearance of at least 140 milliliters per minute, were also at a risk for an initial subtherapeutic trough. Patients who weighed at least 90 kilograms and did not meet the ARC risk group criteria had significantly higher rates of initial trough achievement. From this, we were able to identify patients with augmented real clearance at risk for an initial subtherapeutic trough level and to develop new recommendations for empiric dose increases in our patient population. What a what a really um, kind of well done study here, especially because when you when you think about augmented renal clearance, right, to like truly diagnose you know, like an eight to 24 hour, like true urine collection. Right. And like chances that that's truly done like a hundred percent accurately and things are, are on the lower end. So the fact that we have a scoring system validated, we're doing all these things I think is, is really neat. Now, one thing in the future I would be very curious about is how does the rate of changing from trough monitoring to AUC monitoring kind of affect all that? And maybe the subtherapeutic troughs, um, can, had an AUC maybe at the lower end of your goal range. And that may be, you know, why, you know, tons of patients didn't need to get switched to different gram positive antibiotics or anything like that. But I, one of my big questions and one of the things that I've always kind of um, been curious with is, so how do you think this knowledge, right? Cause you, you, you found that, you know, you're underdosing vancomycin, not you, like the you as in the research project, um, in patients with augmented renal clearance, but how does that influence your beta lactam dosing? Is it something where like you might empirically make changes to a dosing regimen, or maybe you change it in response to a subtherapeutic level? So how, how do these results kind of play into the other antibiotics in these patients? Sure. So we do not perform therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams within our health system. Um, but based on the underdosing that I saw with vancomycin in our patients with my study um, that had augmented renal clearance, I am starting to make impaired dose adjustments to our renally cleared beta-lactam antibiotics. Um, I think some of my other, um, some of the other pharmacists that I work with who are often taking care of patients with augmented renal clearance are also empirically increasing the dosing frequency or occasionally using extended interval infusions in this patient population, secondary to their clinical experience, um, subtherapeutic vancomycin trough levels that we might already have, and then patient risk factors for augmented renal clearance. So it's certainly something that we're taking into consideration and kind of translating over into our beta-lactam dosing. That's really great. Now, 
for for anyone who have maybe listened to the pre-recorded presentation for the the virtual or, or digital Congress, um, you'll notice that Sydney adds a "Go Chiefs" in the beginning, right? Probably the first thirty first thirty seconds. So, Sydney, correct me if I'm wrong, but how did you navigate trying to watch a Chiefs playoff game? during SCCM Congress and like did it did it at least happen on like a less busy conference day or walk us through how you were trying to um, balance all that sure so full disclosure I've been a huge Chiefs fan my whole life so when the time for the Chiefs game was released I did plan my conference schedule on Saturday around the game with the plan to catch up on any sessions Mm -hmm. virtually that took place during the game that happened to be my busiest day with uh, a couple co-residents and former residents presenting in the morning. We had our awards banquet right before the game, and then I presented after the game. So we attended the conference and then went to watch the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, my presentation started at 5 o'clock, and with the one thirty start time, I felt pretty good that it would be over before I needed to be back. That being said, it ended up being a little longer game. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes gets hurt, so most of Kansas City's not breathing for quite a while during that game. <laughs> so I actually needed to get back to the conference center um, before the game was over and before I felt very confident that they had wrapped up a victory. So I actually watched the remainder of the game while I walked from the hotel back to the conference center. And then right about the time I got to the conference center, um, they had a big enough lead and the clock was running out, so I felt pretty good. Um, Fortunately, it happened just in time for me to get ready to present, have that victory, and uh, focus on augmented renal clearance. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. What came to my mind was, what would have happened if that game ended 30 minutes later? Is it, would it have been, you have presenter mode, YouTube TV, and then the audience here. No, I'm just kidding. But that's talk about a uh, kind of a fun thing. Don't worry. Your full disclosure, most people play at their conference around some of those playoff games. Uh, hand up, myself included. Um, and you, you still did a really, a really good job. And what a, what a fun story. I'm just imagining you walking down the streets of San Francisco, uh, eyes glued to the phone, right? It, it's the, that was the kind of game where you get the alert. You're not even working out. It's like, oh, you're, are you, are you in the middle of working? out are you stressed right your heart rate's in the hundreds and things so um but sydney thanks so much for um coming on taking the time to to talk about this uh, star research project it sounds like um you all are doing some some great things even non-football great related things in um, kansas city absolutely thank you so much for having me nick And joining us next, highlighting his star research from the 2023 SECM Congress, is Michael Behal. Now, he is the academic fellow at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy, where he is involved in experiential and didactic teaching, research, and professional service with a clinical practice site in the medical ICU, the University of Kentucky Healthcare. His social media handle, at MLB underscore PharmD. And his title today vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam or cefepime and sepsis associated aki trajectory i know what you're saying wait vancanzosin again but michael here is going to try to put this to bed for once and for all so michael thanks so much for joining and uh, highlighting this uh, awesome research project 
Awesome. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Um, and yeah, kind of like you said, uh, hopefully I can put kind of a new spin on this um, long talked about topic. So just a little bit of background on really where the study came from is I'm sure everyone's aware of the um, data about these two combinations. Is the increased risk of AKI there or not? Um, but kind of regardless of what camp you fall in, this really came from the fact that all of the previous literature in these studies excludes patients that have concomitant or existing AKI, only looking at incident AKI. Um, however, I think a lot of us have seen in our practice, and especially sometimes with pharmacists as well, that we extrapolate that data from that increased risk of incident AKI to patients who may be coming in the door with acute kidney injury already. Um, and we're really extrapolating data to kind of a large population of our critically ill patients. So that's kind of what we wanted to look at with this study was in patients that have existing AKI on admission, does that association still stand true? Do we see worse progression of acute kidney injury, et cetera? So um, this was a single center retrospective study that we did looking at medical ICU patients. Um, and it included patients that had sepsis or septic shock and acute kidney injury on admission. So that's kind of how we identified that novel cohort of sorts. And they had to have received either vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam or vancomycin and cefepine. Those were our two study groups there. We did exclude patients that um, were hospital transfers, died within 24 hours, or had end-stage kidney disease, just kind of to exclude those confounders there. Um, I do want to call out kind of how we approached identifying these regimens. So we really tried to be as um, tight as we could on these inclusion criteria to really identify those two cohorts. So we looked at antimicrobial combination exposure in the first 72 hours of admission. Um, and they had to, again, like I said, exclusively receive either vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam or vancomycin and cefepime for at least two consecutive days to really try and characterize that true exposure and limit any kind of crossover between beta-lactam exposure there. Um, when we think about our outcome, our primary outcome was really just looking at the maximum serum creatinine value in the first um, six days after admission. And then we had several other kidney-related outcomes as our secondary outcomes, so looking at acute kidney injury progression, acute kidney disease, um, any kind of need for kidney replacement therapy, and then kind of some standard outcomes of ICU mortality, hospital length of stay, et cetera. When we look at our results, um, we had 480 patients overall included in our cohort, so a relatively large cohort, with 288 in the vancomycin, piperacillin, and bactam group, and 192 in our vancomycin and cefepine group. Overall, we had pretty balanced uh, baseline characteristics when we think about kind of severity of illness, requirement of vasopressors. So um, we had a pretty thick population. Over three quarters of our patients required vasopressor support, excuse me. Um, we had a varying range of stages of the Hedigo AKI. Um, so anywhere from 25 to 40%, depending on what stage you're looking at. And pretty similar rates of exposure to aminoglycosides and duration of antimicrobial therapy when thinking about our vancomycin component as well as our beta-lactam component. For our results, um, very similar to previous studies, we saw no difference in our primary outcome of maximum serum creatinine. So it was about 2.1 in both groups. Um, and we also saw no difference in acute kidney in injury progression or any of our other kind of kidney-related or really just patient-centered outcomes um, as far as secondary outcomes go. We did conduct a sensitivity analysis, um, just looking at patients that had a documented baseline serum creatinine. And again, we saw very similar results to our main primary analysis, no difference in maximum serum creatinine values or acute kidney injury progression. So overall, kind of aligning with that large camp of people that don't really 
think that there's this increased risk of acute kidney injury with this combination. I'm very much aligned with some of that data that we've seen. So um, I think it is safe to say that we can now have some data in patients that have acute kidney injury when they hit the door or hit ICU admission that it is okay to use this combination in those patients um, and that we don't necessarily need to be overly concerned about increased risk of acute kidney injury progression or any of those other kind of kidney-related outcomes uh, later on in hospital stay. That's the crowd going wild at that uh, result. So I love that. Uh-huh. Now, um, one thing that was uh, really unique about this is kind of what you mentioned of the short courses of of therapy and, and the effects of that. And that was a unique piece that I hadn't necessarily thought of. Um, do we know like for like a future research target of like, what is the effect of exposure to all of these short courses of beta-lactams, right? They get two days of ceftriaxone, then it's escalated to Zosin, and then we go back to Unison to finish a seven-day course. Like, do we know what happens with when we do all that in like a, a, a normal, you know, hospital stay for like pneumonia, for example? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, and I'm glad you brought that up, Nick. Um, so we really don't have any data that I'm aware of kind of showing the um, gram-negative resistance implications of switching back and forth between multiple beta-lactams. And again, I'm glad you brought it up because that really was a big impetus for us doing this study as we were seeing a lot of this kind of in practice of starting vancomycin, piperacillin, tazobactam. Maybe the team gets concerned for acute kidney injury and then they're switching back and forth. Um, when we really don't have any data in patients with acute kidney injury on admission, that that risk actually exists in this population. Um, so you could probably argue the same way also, thinking about the cephalopeme neurotoxicity risk, we may see the switch going the other way. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think it is really important that we maybe try and characterize what resistance implications may be there with the switching back and forth between those regimens. So not necessarily focusing on on your specific study here per se, but more of kind of like the the literature in general. Like, do you think that like the use of of whether it's extended interval or standard infusion of beta lactams, do, do you think how you give those agents has any influence on kind of that risk of of AKI with antibiotic combination therapy? Yeah, that's another great thing to think about as well. Um, I don't really think so. I don't, I don't think it would impact um, kind of outcomes in this area. And then really just overall, I think there's a couple of studies that have looked at standard infusion um, versus extended fusion of cuprosol and tazobactam in combination with vancomycin. In those studies, they saw no difference in um, risk of acute kidney injury or nephrotoxicity. So kind of based on those studies, I would imagine similar things would apply here where that's really not interfering um, with the outcomes in these types of studies. And then, especially if you kind of fall into the camp of that pseudonephrotoxicity, the method of infusion is also not going to affect that at all in this kind of a baseline. Yeah, you mentioned that that pseudotoxicity, right? That's the, the um, Todd Miano study in intensive care medicine from September, basically saying that um, when they looked at large cohorts, right, even, and a lot of them having kidney biomarkers drawn, um, creatinine goes up, but all of the other outcomes that you look at from a kidney perspective, none of those really changed. So kind of like you're mentioning, referencing that pseudotoxicity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you, for those who got to either see you talk in person or got to see the digital um, version, right, that we'd be remiss to, to say that obviously this wasn't, this wasn't your study. This wasn't when it's published, it's not going to say Michael Hall, right, and no at all. So who, who do you need to give some shout outs to? And then the follow-up question is, all these people you're shouting out, how did you get the opportunity to uh, come and make the California trip? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a great team to work with. Um, really, the idea kind of came from Alex Flannery and was spearheaded by Kaylee Whitenack, who's an awesome fourth-year student at the University of Kentucky. And then um, Melissa Thompson-Baston was also on this as well, as well as some great uh, nephrology and home critical care colleagues that we have here. So really was a great, great team effort there. Um, and as far as who got the, who got the uh, cards to kind of take this to San Fran, I don't really know how I ended up with it. Um, I know I was one of the few from the team that was actually kind of making the trip out there and we all kind of knew it was just something important that needed to be shared. So I was happy to kind of throw the abstract out there and I'm really happy where it went and that I was able to have some good conversations with some people out there. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I completely agree. I'm glad you got to share it. Um, thanks for coming on and uh, talking a little bit more about it. And of course, it was good to uh, it was good to see you and catch up in San Francisco. So thanks again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Nick. Wow. Uh, what an awesome series. Um, huge, huge thank you to everyone who participated, not only in this research episode, but in all three episodes in the series. Um, you know, this was a huge endeavor and a new initiative. So friends of the pod, reach out with your thoughts, what you liked, what you didn't like. Um, you know, be trying new stuff. So um, getting some of your input is always valuable. Uh, so reach out at pharmacy to dose, to dose, uh, or pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.